Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. The Watergate scandal is one of the most disruptive and challenging events in the history of U.S. politics. It ended the presidency of Richard Nixon, it shook the faith of the country in political institutions, and has become a shorthand for a fiasco or crisis. But what did Nixon actually do wrong? How did it come to light? And for the last time, what is a Watergate anyways? Well, let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Ethan Blesky. Hello. I'm really happy you're on the show today. I'm so glad to be here. It's not often that you get down to uh, to come on, so I'm no. very excited. Me too. And I'm also very excited about our subject, which is it's Watergate. It's Watergate. We're going to talk about Watergate we're today. Do Watergate. What do you know about Watergate? Let's start oh, there. Oh man, Watergate was uh, it was the hotel that the Democratic Convention was staying in. Yeah, you're very close, actually. Um, it, it was a it was an office complex. It was a an complex of complex. a number okay. of different buildings in Washington D.C. Okay. One of them was a hotel. Okay. Uh, the other one was, or or one of the other ones was a was an office complex. And, Anyways, yeah. Uh, they, they discovered that they were being recorded, and it led to the discovery of all of these tapes that Nixon had mm-hmm. uh, recording people around him and himself, uh-huh. and uh, w- without consent. Yes, that's a pretty good rundown actually in terms of like a a very like bird's eye view of what happened here yeah i would say that's better than probably 90 percent of people can do (laughs) because in general watergate is this kind of like oh yeah oh yeah oh watergate Watergate. Mm -hmm. and beyond that you know other other than knowing that watergate somehow leads to uh the departure of richard nixon from the office of president of the united states Mm -hmm. how that exactly works is a bit of a mystery and and Beyond that, maybe just putting gate at the end of things and knowing like, oh, oh, something went wrong here. <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, the, the timeline's pretty fuzzy for me. And I know about uh, I know about Deep Throat as mm-hmm. as the uh, as the famous informant. Right. Who I believe still isn't specifically known to the public. No, his we, identity. We have, a, we have a very good idea. No, his identity has been confirmed. It has been confirmed. Yes, okay. it was confirmed in uh, 2005, actually. So oh, it's interesting. very, very recent. OK. Um, but we'll get to him. Yeah, let's yeah, not yeah. let's not jump ahead too much. I don't always love sticking to like a very strict timeline in these no, episodes. No, no. But I think for Watergate, it actually serves the story very well because part of what was so shocking about Watergate was the way that everything unfolded over time. Mm-hmm. Because it just it starts out so small and and it just unfurls into this massive 
conspiracy is is a very very reasonable word in fact it's a very accurate word for what happened and the effect on the american public was uh just shocking but yeah i mean really beyond that it just gets into it take the word gate put it after a thing yeah it's gone bad choose a word i don't care uh Chowdergate. What happened to Chowdergate? I don't know, Whoa. but it was bad and involved chowder. And that's all you need to know. Uh, the, the shorthand is amazing, but the specifics of it have been so... I, I don't know if they've necessarily been lost, but it's been so long now. I mean, we're talking about the early 70s that mm-hmm. you basically need to be in your 50s plus to even have like a recollection of seeing it on the news when you were a kid. Yeah. There's a lot of people alive today that that don't really understand what happened there yeah let's address the elephant in the room before we go too much further with this this is a history podcast i'm not really interested in talking about current events that being said part of the motivation for doing this topic is that there are things about nixon's presidency and the impeachment process and the investigation process that have been drawing a lot of parallels with uh, today's presidency. And so, so that fact is, is part of the impetus for doing this, uh, this episode. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're going to see a lot more parallels than I even realized when I started out, actually (laughs) it's uh, it's uncanny at certain points, but interesting. That being said, number one, historical events are not a predictor of future events. I don't know why I need to put that disclaimer out there, but like, I just really need to (laughs) be very clear about what we're doing here. And, and number two, this isn't meant as any sort of modern commentary other than, um, seeing as Watergate keeps coming up in the conversation, I felt that maybe there are some people out there who could use a little bit of context. Context. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where we're, we're sitting at, uh, on that one. I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't mention it when you notice a glaring, uh, 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 similarity to things that are going on in today's news, but that's not where I'm hoping that the conversation is headed. Okay. Yeah. On the evening of June 17th, 1972, a security guard named Frank Wills was doing his rounds at the uh, Watergate complex. And he noticed uh, a door in the parking garage uh, leading into the office complex had tape over the latches. Like, oh. like in a spy movie, like they put, the tape over the latches so it can close but not lock yeah and frank did the only thing that you would do as a security guard at the watergate complex in 1972 he went that's weird and he took the tape off and he kept going on his rounds <laughs> great <laughs> however he came back about an hour later and noticed that the tape was back on the locks and frank the, the paragon of investigator that he was finally put two and two together and went, maybe there's something up here. And he oh, called, that's not right. And he called the cops. Now, the Watergate complex was very, very new and very hip at the time. Yeah. It's got that very like late 60s, early 70s, like very rounded architecture. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. And I know which one you're talking about. And um, Washington, D.C. at the time was very, very boxy mm-hmm. and there was something just like extra cool about the watergate and everyone wanted to be in there um the hotel was very popular the offices were very popular it was yeah. uh it was chic uh-huh. and the uh 1972 was an election year um and the as you mentioned the 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 dnc the Den- democratic national committee or democratic Na- national convention had their offices in the watergate building yeah 
So when the cops got the call that there was something going on there, they took it fairly seriously. Sorry, just to interject, you said this was a uh, an election year. This was Nixon's re-election for his second term, correct? That's correct. He just, was initially just check. Yeah, he was initially um, elected in 1968. He was coming up for re-election in 1972. Yeah, and the Democrats were up against a relatively powerful incumbent at the time. Nixon has this sort of reputation now as being an immensely unpopular president. Mm-hmm. That is incredibly untrue, especially in 1972. Yeah. He was a fairly successful president, in fact. We'll, we'll get a little bit more into his voting record uh, a little bit later on, but he was he was doing okay for himself. The, the, mm-hmm. the campaign was really not in any trouble, especially because the Democratic uh, uh, candidate was not terribly strong that year. So... I couldn't even tell you who he was running against. That's understandable. Um, his uh, his name was George McGovern. And he is responsible for one of the worst political losses in U.S. history. So, Oh, great. Yeah, that's why you probably don't know a ton about him. I think I've heard the name McGovern, and mm-hmm. it may have only been from, say, a Simpsons episode or something like that. Yeah, right? that sounds about right. They love right? making Nixon jokes. Yeah. Um, so the cops show up. And they start sweeping the building Mm -hmm. and they find five men in the office buildings. Right. Virgilio Gonzalez, Bernard Baker, or sorry, Bernard Barker, uh, James McCord, Eugenio Martinez, and Frank Sturgis. There are going to be some very good names in this episode, by the way. I'm very excited for a lot of them. All right. Most of them sound kind of like joke made up names. (laughs) There's just, there's not a lot of Johnsons or Smiths or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's excellent. (laughs) And these men had a weird assortment of stuff on them. They had lockpicks. They had door jimmies. Uh, they had over tw- uh, $2,000 in straight cash in sequential bills. It was about oh. $2,300. Uh-oh. Which is a weird thing for burglars to be carrying around. Mm-hmm. Unless they just robbed a bank, I guess. Um, which these guys had not. They had shortwave police scanners to see, you know, to monitor the situation. They had... Uh, some cameras, some 35 mil cameras. Uh, they had mm-hmm. over 40 rolls of film with them. Wow. Um, and they had three pen-sized tear gas guns. Whoa. Which is not the kind of thing that your average day-to-day burglar carries with them. Nope. Like maybe one pen-sized tear gas gun, but three? Come <laughs> on. They also had electronic listening devices and mm-hmm. tools for electronic repair. The investigators started questioning them immediately, obviously, but... The five men clammed up. They had nothing to say to the cops. However, they were able to determine that the five men were actually staying at the Watergate Hotel, which was the, the building next door, basically. Okay. And had been preparing for the robbery there. They found more paraphernalia in their hotel rooms. And among that paraphernalia, they found some address books. Okay. They went through because they're looking for literally anything at this point that's going to help them out in the in the investigation. Because this is weird. This let's, is all. Let's gather clues. This is all very weird, but also again, it's an attack on the DNC, which mm-hmm. is a big. It's a deal. big deal. They discover that two of the men have the same name in their book. A man named E. Howard Hunt. Hunt was a former CIA operative. Ooh. He was also currently the security coordinator for an organization known as the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, the CRP. Also sometimes known as the, the CREEP, the creep, uh, you know, unofficially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, com- Committee for the Re-Election of the President. This was Nixon's 
re-election campaign uh, committee. So he's not running the campaign or anything, but he's very high up. And they also discovered that one of the men, James McCord, was also a, for- a former uh, CIA operative. So... Oh, this doesn't look interesting. This doesn't look great. Clearly, these two men know each other and probably fairly well and 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 sort of adds more credence to the idea that uh, Hunt is the one that organized this whole break in. Mm -hmm. Now, the burglars are saying that they acted on their own behalf, that they were there looking for basically something to blackmail politicians with, but that they didn't have any doing uh, it on their own. Yeah, exactly. Which seems incredibly suspicious for obvious reasons now they would later find out that there was an earlier burglary in may this wasn't the first time that these guys had broken in okay but the first one was successful and what they would discover is that in this may burglary they managed to plant a number of electronic listening devices in phone sets in the offices uh, around various offices and that the june break-in was most likely an attempt to repair several of the listening devices that had malfunctioned. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the place that the investigation is going to end up on for the burglary as to why they were there. Mm -hmm. There's some doubts as to whether that's actually the reason that they were in there or not. We're not, to this day, we're not 100% positive what the motive for breaking in was. Uh, There's a fairly strong alternate theory that the reason they were there was to try and find evidence that prostitutes had been hired by uh, members of DNC that are fairly high up in an attempt to discredit them. Yeah. Yeah. To, to throw the, uh, the election into chaos and, and make it easier for uh, Nixon to win, which seems like, like, come on, like that seems very, very extreme, right? Like why would anyone go to those kind of lengths? <laughs> but here's the thing. There's, there's further connections here to Nixon and, by the way, Nixon knows about this like the day after he finds out that this has happened. There's a good chance that he didn't actually order the break-in. In fact, we're almost certain that he didn't order the break-in itself. Oh, okay. Um, however, Nixon was no stranger to kind of underhanded political maneuvering. Uh, would, would you call him uh, tricky? I suppose you could call him that. Okay. Um, see... Hunt had already uh, worked for Nixon in the past. He'd been working for Nixon for over three years, not just as security uh, chief for or security coordinator for the uh, uh, the CRP, but doing some side jobs. Oh, he was a member of what was known as the White House Plumbers Initiative. Okay, which is a very very good name because. The, the way they got it was that he was on this uh, this committee with or sorry, he was he was on this team with a couple of other guys, uh, one named G. Gordon Liddy and uh, another guy. Um, his, his last name was Young, but at, at one point, Young's grandmother asked him what he did. And Young told him that he worked in, uh, worked for the president, helping him uh, to stop leaks. And she goes, oh, like a plumber. And he went, oh, yeah. And so he made up like little plaques for their offices that they had to take down like a day later because yeah. it's a little weird and kind of defeats the whole secrecy thing. But suffice it to say that since 1969, Nixon had been employing former CIA operatives to, number one, fight against any uh, White House officials who were leaking any information both to the press and to the Democrats. Mm-hmm. But... Also to act a little more uh, proactively than that in terms of 
trying to dig up dirt on political opponents. Hmm. Uh, trying to put pressure on political opponents using the IRS. Yeah. Trying to put po- uh, pressure on these political opponents using uh, FBI investigations. Basically using anything that he could to um, gain further information about his opponents, uh, to discredit them, to make their lives generally miserable, he was willing to go for. Yeah. So Nixon was, yeah. The fact that he didn't order the break-in doesn't mean that he probably wouldn't have been okay with the break-in uh, if he had been involved with ordering it. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, G. Gordon Liddy, uh, one of the plumbers, was also working for the CRP. He was the finance counsel. So that means he's a, a working in like a, a legal capacity um, for the managing the finances of the campaign. I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, and yeah. I understand that it's like a lot coming at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all going to pay off, I promise That's you. That's a lot of CIA agents... Or former CIA agents on your campaign. Yeah. that's That seems unusual in and of itself. Well, to be fair, Liddy wasn't former CIA. I mean, he was former military, but not former CIA. Okay. It's it's mainly Hunt and McCord that were former CIA oper- operatives, but he, they were very comfortable with covert operations. Yeah. So this burglary goes down, and the Nixon administration goes, uh, these guys are too close to us. Mm -hmm. They're very, very worried about this whole thing. And by June 19th, so just two days later, the press is already reporting that one of the burglars is a a Republican party, probably referring to McCord. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're getting, they're getting very worried about the whole thing. The, The head of the CRP, a guy named John Mitchell goes forward and categorically denies the involvement or, uh, knowledge of any Nixon uh, or, or any campaign officials in this whole operation, which is probably not his strongest move, seeing as Mitchell was actually uh, the one who signed off on the operation in the first place. He told um, <laughs> he told Liddy and Hunt to go ahead and uh, and organize this whole thing. Okay. In fact, there had been a plan floating around the, the re-election uh, campaign for some time now to kind of ramp up espionage activities against the Democrats in a hope in the hope of getting an, an easier win. Yeah, and there was an earlier campaign, uh, or there was an earlier plan to break into McGovern's personal offices to try and oh, okay dig up dirt on him that was deemed too ambitious. And this was like the scaled back version that wow. uh, that Mitchell finally signed off on. Wow. So the CRP is very very dirty. Yeah is I guess the point that I'm trying to get across here. Once the news of all of this breaks, uh, there's a top Nixon aide, a a guy named John Ehrlichman, who immediately orders uh, Hunt's White House safe destroyed. Anything that he's got in his confidential, like official government safe, destroy Mm -hmm. it. We don't want that evidence getting out. And um, it was destroyed on his orders, uh, you know, probably on Nixon's orders, but through him, it was destroyed by a guy named uh, L. Patrick Gray, who happened to be the acting director of the FBI at the time. This is how dirty this is. Wow. So Nixon had his aide order the head of the FBI to uh, destroy evidence that pointed to a member of his reelection campaign ordering a break in at the DNC offices. Wow. This is all before the election. I I did not know that the FBI was involved to, well, to that degree. Certain members were. 
keep in mind that all of these organizations are very, very big. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of different people with a lot of different viewpoints in them. We would find out later. The reason I say that we're very, very sure that Nixon didn't know what was going on is that, as you mentioned, eventually tapes would come out. It turned out that Nixon was recording basically everything. Um, They had a recording of him from June the 23rd. So less than a week after the, the burglary in which he, well, he specifically asked someone who was the asshole who ordered the burglary. <laughs> so we're guessing not him. It's pretty strong evidence. Yeah. But his whole campaign was so dirty that it's kind of. It's almost whole, irrelevant. It's yeah, that's that's a good word for it. I was going to say pedantic, but yeah, irrelevant is maybe even more accurate. Um, it didn't matter, really. All mm-hmm. of these people were working directly for Nixon and. It's not even going to be about the breakup at the end of the day, or the break-in, sorry. It's going to be about Nixon's uh, reaction to it and his attempts to cover up what happened and cover up the the links. Mm -hmm. Because he went to his chief of staff, uh, a guy named H.R. Haldeman, and specifically asked him to work to have the CIA block the FBI's investigation of these burglars because the FBI is now involved. It's a break in at the DNC. So they escalated it from local police to a full federal matter. Yeah. Understandably so. But the CIA isn't supposed to to block the investigation altogether. What Nixon asked them to block specifically was their investigation of the source of the burglars funding. Oh, that's very specific instructions. There's very specific instructions, and there's going to be a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Because the FBI, despite the CIA's best efforts, manages to start... Trace those sequential bills, well, perhaps? It's not It's not the sequential bills that's going to do them in. Yeah. You've heard the phrase, follow the money? Yes. That's related to this era. It's not necessarily directly a thing that was said during this investigation. It's a quote from a movie based on the book that some journalists wrote about their investigation into this. So we're a few steps removed, and yet the phrase follow the money has been inextricably linked with the Watergate investigation. And that's because that's what ended up helping them out. I mean, the FBI didn't need to realize that CIA was potentially tampering in the investigation to Mm -hmm. go after the money because that's a a really obvious place to start when you're investigating a, a crime that you suspect has wider political implications yeah who's paying these people yep their big break comes on august 1st again we are still before the election that's that's not very long afterwards no no it's only it's less than it's less than two months it's like six weeks later they discover that one of the burglars bernard barker deposited a check for twenty five thousand dollars into a mexican bank account and then move the funds around through various shell corporations, small businesses that he owned back yeah. into the United States. Keep in mind that $25,000 in 1972 is approximately 146,000 US dollars today. Okay. It's enough. Inflation's kind of a thing. Yeah. But here's the thing about that check. When they dug into it, they realized that the check wasn't made out to Barker. It was a legal campaign donation made by a Republican uh, a member of the Republican Party to the CRP. They wrote a check for $25,000 to the Republican, or specifically to the CRP. Okay. And 
gave the check to the CRP. This is all perfectly legal. Yeah. But someone at the CRP endorsed the check and then handed it over to Barker, allowing him to deposit it into his account. What? That's a thing that you can do with any check, right? Like, yeah. You know, I mean, as long as the person who's, who's, uh, who it's made out to has endorsed the check, yeah. it can be turned over to another person to deposit. Yeah. That's just how checks work, but no one uses checks anymore, so I thought I would just kind of run through that real yeah, quick. absolutely. <laughs> but what they didn't realize is that when checks are deposited in this manner there were regulations in place at the time that Mm -hmm. banks keep uh six months worth of records for you know makes sense yeah yeah, very obvious reasons to make sure not even to protect against criminal activity but to um comply with federal financial regulations yeah just make sure that they're doing their due diligence don't mess with the irs basically and the crp didn't really realize that that was the case they thought that the way that they were moving this money around was untraceable because of the international component yeah but when it was moved back into the country it popped back up on their radar basically hmm. so barker's got these massive sums of money in his account they go chasing after it yeah managed to pull the check to figure out where this money came from in the first place and find out that it's come from the crp yeah this causes the investigation to suspect uh conspiracy uh, in like a literal criminal sense of the word mm-hmm they managed to find a total of over $86,000 of checks deposited in a similar fashion, all originating with the CRP. For for various? For various amounts. Comes out to around five hundred grand today. Okay. It's a lot of money. Yeah. I guess that's what it takes to pay someone to break into the DNC headquarters. I guess. The guy who endorsed them is this, uh, it's this guy named Hugh Sloan. And Hugh works as a bookkeeper and treasurer for the CRP. And Hugh don't want to hurt no one. <laughs> He's just doing his job. <laughs> Aw. However, as uh, an accountant, he also has a fiduciary responsibility to the CRP. Yes. Are you generally aware of fiduciary responsibility? I am. I've been on a couple of like school councils and things. So I, so I know a little bit about fiduciary responsibility. Which is, generally speaking you're responsible for the money yeah and you're responsible to act in the best interest of the the company or corporation or 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 organization that you're representing exactly and it's a very serious thing especially for like at at this sort of level because Mm -hmm. breaking that breaking that responsibility can have criminal consequences yeah fiduciary is also a great word it's a very good word it's just it's just a a nice word so they go and, and they say hugh what happened here you endorsed the checks and it didn't go into the CRP accounts. Mm-hmm. What's going on, man? You're better than this. I know you're a good accountant. And under basically threat of, it's called fiduciary malfeasance. <gasps> the most serious crime an accountant can be <laughs> charged with. <laughs> That's not true at all. Um, under under threat of, of these criminal charges, he admits that he'd been ordered to turn the checks over to Liddy after endorsing them. Okay. Jackpot. Ordered by whom? Oh, other members of the CRP. Other okay. high, very high-ranking members, including Mitchell. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's uh. So so there's still a, a backtrace on, on who's doing this. Yeah. So now they've got like a fairly good idea of what is happening within the, well, within the campaign. 
but they kind of run into a dead end in terms of who knows what at this point. Mm -hmm. On August 29th, so in the midst of all this investigation, which the amount that it's public knowledge is actually fairly minimal at this point in time. Oh, yeah. I I mean, this is a serious criminal investigation. They don't go telling everyone everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, when you're building a case, you want to make sure that the people people you're building a case against know as little as possible. Yes. On August 29th, Nixon goes forward and claims that his uh, uh, presidential counsel, John Dean, and uh, counsel uh, SEL, so uh, it's basically his um, legal advisor, uh, in in his cabinet, okay. Um, he claimed that Dean had conducted a thorough interview or a thorough investigation into the burglary. He hadn't, and that no one in the staff or administration was involved. Also, not true. Probably not true. About two weeks later, September fifteenth. Again, we're talking about a very short timeline here on all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, the five burglars plus Hunt and Liddy are indicted on charges of conspiracy, wiretapping. Uh, violations and attempted burglary okay those are fairly big crimes Mm -hmm. but the investigators are hoping that maybe they can figure out a little bit more about this conspiracy yeah problem is everyone's clammed up they're saying this is as far as it goes we acted on our own accord Mm -hmm. etc etc you know the usual stuff yeah october 10th the fbi reports to the public that the Watergate break-in had been a part of this espionage campaign by by Nixon's uh, re-election campaign. So this is reported widely to yeah. everybody on October 10th. And then on November 7th, uh, Richard Nixon is re-elected in one of the biggest landslide victories in U.S. history. Wow. So we're barely getting started here. And you'd think that everything that we've talked about so far would make that really hard to do. I mean, this is a man who had barely won the presidency the first time and mm-hmm. really only won it because uh, there was a very popular third party candidate who split the split vote the on vote. the left. Yeah. You'd think between that and the political scandal, it would be almost impossible for him to win. But that's not the case at all. Again, one of the largest victories in, in all of U.S. history. He only uh, I, I think he missed out on 17 electoral college votes out of over 500. Wow. That's- yeah. That's a landslide. In in every sense of the word, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is a really good spot to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what Nixon as a president was like. I'm back on HI 101 with Ethan Blesky. Hello. And we've been talking about the Watergate scandal. Yep. And... It's a lot coming real quick. Very fast. A lot of names. And we just got started. A lot of connections. A lot of great names. A lot of very good names. I told you. I yeah, told you, you we were going to be doing some good names. Each each one came at me. I'm just like, wow. Wow. Yeah. Like I said, I they, they sound made up. Not in that like, oh, these are ridiculous names, but like they're good, like solid fiction sounding names. Yeah. Like I can see this being from like a very hard boiled detective novel. <laughs> and I would very much enjoy that novel. Oh, yeah. We haven't been talking a lot about Nixon, though, especially about Nixon's sort of public persona, because that was a very different thing than his private self. Yeah. And Nixon's first term was, as we mentioned, a very successful one. I mean, this is a president who oversaw the first moon landing, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, a president who was famous for his international relations. I mean, working with Henry Kissinger, but yep. um, things like uh, his very famous trip to China, reopening China, yep. uh, opening up uh, diplomatic relations with them for the first time since their communist revolution. He was laying the groundwork for nuclear de-escalation with the USSR. He actually uh, was very well respected by the leadership of the USSR hmm. um, and, and had really good relationships with them and signed the first sort of arms destruction deals. Yeah. Um, it would take a long time for that to really come into effect, but he, he started that process off. Mm-hmm. This is the guy who founded the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Wow. I didn't know that one. Yeah. Not that his presidency was perfect by any means but no you know the the things that were uh hurting him he generally had a pretty solid plan on how to deal with yeah um if that makes sense one of the biggest problems that he had was uh the civil rights movement yeah this is the middle of the civil rights movement desegregation is uh an incredibly contentious uh issue in the Mm -hmm. south and he was running into a bit of a perception problem in that it's really important to remember that traditionally the South has been a very strongly democratic uh, yes. region up until this point. Mm-hmm. And the states that honestly today we think of as being almost surefire Republican states were like clockwork going to the Democrats. Yeah. To the point where there were a number of Democratic uh, presidents who basically ran the country from the South alone. From the South alone. Uh, a lot of them from that time period, as far as I know, had had houses down there that they called the white house south yeah yeah it it was uh, the the strength of the democratic party in the south was extremely strong Mm -hmm. a lot of people put like a lot of emphasis on nixon's courting of the the southern states um there's this the famous southern strategy you've probably heard of um i'm not sure i have no uh he had a he had a strategist who was like very very keen on winning support in the south for the republicans yeah and Basically, his theory was we use wedge issues to try and gain as many voters as possible. Okay. The theory being that it, it sounds really cold because it's from like a very like high level Democrat uh, demographic point of view, but white voters in the South outnumbered black voters so significantly that they could v- basically ignore the concerns of black voters and cater to the concerns of white voters in uh, and and expect to win. Uh, a fairly significant percentage of the voting yeah um that way but you still do have reintegration which is a major uh issue in the south so the way that nixon decides to address all of this is to accelerate desegregation because it's seen as the thing that his party is a little bit weak on yeah or is causing the most division within the party at least while changing his rhetoric from being like express explicitly racist to mm-hmm. talking about things like states rights and um uh sort lowering of taxes and these sort of hiding the issue behind uh other issues yeah what's known as dog whistles really yeah um things that aren't specifically about race but kind of are also and you can say them and people know what you're talking about but everyone has a level of plausible deniability yeah there. yeah now, what was the name of that strategist? Oh, I'll have to look it up and put it in the notes. I, I forgot to write it down. My point about the Southern strategy was more that a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on it for Nixon's success. Yeah. When in reality, what Nixon had was 
as he termed it, uh, a national strategy that for the first time encompassed the South or involved the South or included the South. Okay. That was the way he looked at it, at least. Now, that becomes a very semantic point, but Mm -hmm. the... The point that I'm trying to make is it wasn't really like only a focus on the South that that won the presidency for him. The truth is that the Democratic Party after Kennedy is struggling hard. Yeah, they lost a giant. They did. But one of the biggest one of the other largest problems with uh, Nixon's presidency, namely the Vietnam War, was also a major problem for the Democrats. Mm hmm. It was a problem for Nixon because it was incredibly unpopular. Yeah. It was a problem for the Democrats because it was dividing the party on how to move forward on the issue. Okay. So what Nixon is coming into this election with is a relatively successful first first four years mm-hmm. and a strategy for dealing with um, traditionally Democratic states that yeah. will ideally bring them around to his side mm-hmm. um, through making the very like uh fiery uh version of um civil rights issues go away by just settling them yeah but still kind of acknowledging the concerns of white voters who don't necessarily completely agree with uh complete desegregation at this period in history yeah and then on the other side there's yeah there's the democrats and everything's going bad Mm -hmm. um George McGovern was an unfortunate character in political history. <laughs> the primaries that he battled through were difficult and extremely divisive. Okay. So while you have a candidate who takes the, well, who, who was basically a, a shoe in for the Republicans, they weren't yeah. going to, uh, like no one, no one of any consequence ran against Nixon. That yeah. does sometimes happen on a second term. Not with somebody as, as popular as Nixon was yeah. at that point in time. They took so much time battling it out in the primaries that McGovern didn't really have a lot of time to campaign as president as effectively okay. as Nixon did from basically a, an uncontested standpoint. So Nixon was really well established, whereas the Democrats had been battling it out long enough that McGovern just sort of showed up at the last minute. and A little bit. Okay. But there's also this issue with... Um, mcgovern's campaign where he was a fairly strong pacifist when it came to uh, vietnam and he was promising to pull out of there as soon as possible okay um not everyone was comfortable with that idea mm-hmm. a lot of people saw vietnam as well i mean without getting too much into the whole vietnam war you have to understand that that's coming from a place of fighting communism which is kind of a thing in the yep. late 60s early 70s yeah and the idea of pulling out of it potentially looking like defeat was yeah. a big problem for a lot of americans mm-hmm. um so on one hand you have kids dying over there yeah on the other hand you have this extremely important ideological battle that's raging throughout well the you know for four decades of the 20th century mm-hmm. um and that's a hard line to walk and there are a lot of democrats who don't think that pulling out is the best move mm-hmm. they want to see the thing won it gets to a point where there's actually an anyone but McGovern campaign within the Democratic Party when wow. he starts taking the lead. Yeah. Now, McGovern was, uh, I mean, he had served in World War II. He had a military record, just like most politicians of this time. At that time, yeah. Chose to completely play it down in, in favor of this sort of like, you know, get mm-hmm. out of Vietnam as fast as possible thing. This tied him to the hippie movement in a little, in a bit of a way that not everyone was very comfortable with. Yeah. Um, because as much as we sort of associate the 60s with the counterculture movement now, 
that was a minority of the population it was a counterculture yes right? yeah, yeah it was exactly. very reactionary to the the established culture and that's mm-hmm. not necessarily something that you want in your in your corner he was having trouble uh, mcgovern was having trouble getting uh endorsements from politicians but also from lobbyists he was having trouble getting uh yeah. you know veterans associations to endorse him mm-hmm. um because they saw him as being kind of soft on military power yeah which is kind of an issue he finally actually wins the um the primaries becomes the the democratic uh, uh candidate and very shortly after this is this is july so we're uh only four months away from the uh from the the election actually closer to three months because it's end of july yeah it comes out that his pick for vp uh, a man named tom eagleton um again these names man it comes out in public that Tom Eagleton has been treated for depression. He's been going through treatments, fairly like extensive treatments. Like, okay. I mean, this is the, this is the early seventies. So this is, they There's, resort to this a little bit easier, but like shock therapy, yeah. um, uh, electro shock therapy and things like that. It, it turned out that his issues ran a little bit deeper later down the line. But at that point in time, that was enough for people to question his fitness, uh, to be vice president. There's a large stigma against mental health at the time, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, we're, we're not exactly doing the best today, but we're miles ahead of where we were that at that point. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So McGovern comes forward and says, listen, I stand behind Eagleton 1000%. There's this big speech. I'm standing behind him. I will not take him off my Mm -hmm. ticket. The man has an illness. This is not something that's going to prevent him from being an outstanding vice president. I will stand by him no matter what. So that's July 26th. On August 1st, he accepts Eagleton's withdrawal. Okay. Yeah. So this is a no-win situation for him because, I mean hindsight being 2020 Mm -hmm. he probably never should have done the whole endorsement thing in the first place yeah because what this means is that he has half of his base going why would you ever have supported this guy he was clearly unfit yeah and he has the other half going you waffled like you said that you were going to stand behind him and then you dumped him as soon as things got hot yeah like, why should we trust you to be decisive on anything when you're just going to change your mind on something as important as this? As as the vice president, the potential vice president of the United States. Yeah. That's that's a big deal. He McGovern would later point to this as the point where he saw this campaign falling apart for him. He yeah. saw this as the he saw this as the death knell. It didn't really end there for him, though. I mean, it got so bad that those Southern Democrats that we talked about who, mm-hmm. you know, had for generations voted uh, Democrat began a Democrats for Nixon campaign. <laughs> wow. They really didn't like George McGovern. <laughs> he ran into funding issues. Uh, the Nixon campaign outspent him two to one. Oh, ow. Which is a big uh, indicator of success. Yeah. A very big indicator. Um Five days before the election, he was campaigning and he had a, a Nixon supporter heckling him. And he um, he told the guy that he had something to tell him and like uh, motioned him over across the barrier and whispered in his ear, kiss my ass, was overheard and it was reported in the press. Oh, McGovern. <laughs> also, the DNC had been broken into by Nixon. So every move that they made at, you know, throughout this entire campaign was being mm-hmm. countered by Nixon's campaign very effectively. Yeah. So their messaging was like 
all over McGovern. They could not get out under Nixon's thumb. Yeah. The election in the popular vote was won by Nixon 61 to 37%. Okay. 61% of the vote went to Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a massive margin. It's huge. Yeah. There there are not elections that go you're you're usually within 10%. Yeah. Like a 10% margin like 45 to 55 is that's pretty big. That's a big difference in an election these days in 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 modern US politics. Yeah. I I misquoted the number of electoral uh college seats. 520 went to uh Nixon and 17 went to uh McGovern. Okay. So he got slightly more. <laughs> Most of those in New York, which is a bastion of democratic voters but yeah i mean everywhere else if you look at an electoral map for 1972 the entire country is red it's wow it's amazing all the normal i, I, I mean california was red oregon was wow. red like everything yeah everything it was it was crazy and all of this and it's really important to remember is in the midst of all of this uh controversy around the watergate break-in which people aren't really that aware of mm-hmm I think it's easy to forget based on how plugged in we are these days. Absolutely. How difficult it can be to get information out like that Mm -hmm. uh, in in the early 70s. This is still an era of, you know, three major TV networks. Mm -hmm. This is still an era of, of, you know, this is this is the golden age of of the newspaper. Right. But a lot of the newspapers weren't really reporting on it. Yeah. Um, a lot of them didn't have the resources to report on it. As much as the newspaper was uh, the way to get your news at that point, we're talking about a lot of local newspapers mm-hmm. who don't necessarily have the type types of contacts within these big uh, law enforcement organizations to get these stories out. Yeah. Enter some very familiar players to us today. Uh, the Washington Post, yep. the New York Times. Mm-hmm time magazine okay these are the ones that start really looking into these stories and they were already looking into them before the election it's not as though the the election spurred these investigations yeah but it kind of kicked it up a little bit Mm -hmm. because these reporters are working so hard on these stories and they're seeing how badly nixon beat mcgovern in this election and they're going like guys there's something going on here like everyone should realize that there is this is bigger than it looks this smells bad um two names that you might actually recognize even though uh you might not have realized it before uh bob woodward and carl bernstein yep woodward and bernstein uh reporters at the post yes were the leading investigators into this is it isn't bernstein that's actually deep throat is it no okay we're getting deep throat we're very close Woodward and Bernstein are actually the two that would go on to write the book All the President's Men in 1974. Mm-hmm. That's the one we were referring to earlier yep. with the Fall of the Money, yep. uh, which would become a movie by the same name in 1976. They were the ones that were going like, guys, there's, there's, this is a bigger conspiracy. This isn't about five guys who are looking for some dirt. There's somebody told them to do this. Yeah. And here's the deal. They were... These are the two guys who were working with the source that you mentioned that they they called Deep Throat. The name coming from both the fact that he was embedded deep within a, a federal uh, uh, agency that was investigating these crimes and was leaking stuff that they 
wouldn't have had any access to otherwise. Yeah. Um, and also uh, uh, play on the fact that the film Deep Throat had just come out that year. So, you know, reporters are reporters and they'll do reporter stuff. Hey. Um, you know, Woodward actually was able to contact Deep Throat directly. Um, he knew him uh, previously. He was very nonspecific about how, obviously. Yeah. But all he would really say about Deep Throat was that, again, he was uh, deep within one of these organizations that's investigating all of this. It was kind of implied probably the FBI and was willing to talk about what they were doing because at this point it's still a little bit under wraps. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they worked with uh, Deep Throat starting in June of 72. So that's already a couple of months before, like nearly four months before the FBI went public with what they knew. Yeah. <laughs> If Woodward wanted to contact Deep Throat, he would move a, a flower pot with a red flag back and forth on his balcony. Okay. So if it was in the same position as yesterday, everything was fine. If yeah. it was in the opposite corner of the balcony as the day before, he wanted to talk. Likewise, um, Deep Throat, if he wanted to talk to Woodward, if he had new information for him, would um, go up to the building in the morning and find woodward's copy of the new york times he would flip to page 20 and he would draw a clock around the page number at the time that he wanted to meet whoa that's some real espionage espionage stuff they also sometimes called each other on the phone <laughs> <laughs> that's great i want a friendship like that I always really like that detail. <laughs> like they go through this whole elaborate thing. Anyways, they they would meet up at this um this parking garage, like yeah. underground. Like it's it's this very like classic. I mean, we we get a lot of fictional tropes out of things yes. that are happening yeah, in this yeah, yeah. in this investigation, right? But yeah, the whole the whole underground parking garage. In fact, they were going to uh, demolish it a few years ago, and it ended up being saved as a uh, a national as a national monument. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, anyways, Deep Throat is feeding them all this information on what the what the FBI is working on mm -hmm. in terms of how the, the burglars might be connected to Nixon. And yeah. there's all these other media outlets who are basically saying Woodward and Bernstein are full of it. Like, I, you know, ignore those guys. They're they're on some they're making stuff up. They couldn't possibly have this sort of information. Yeah, they're a bunch of hacks. They won't reveal their source. So who knows, how, you know. There might as well be no source, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. All the usual stuff that is done to discredit uh, uh, journalists. But their stuff keeps being kind of right. Mm -hmm. Like really right. It turns out, and we talked about this briefly before, but in 2005, we finally got definitive proof of who Deep Throat was. Uh, he was a man named Mark Felt. And at the time, Mark Felt happened to be the associate director of the FBI. Okay. Not the top, very close to. Yeah. Remember, the director of the FBI was working for Nixon. Yeah. Felt was concerned that some of the stuff might not see the light of day mm -hmm. and decided that going to the media was the best way to do it. He was a whistleblower. Yep. This was, to, uh, like I said, it was, it was only confirmed a couple of years ago. Felt was over 90 years old and beginning to suffer early stage dementia. So there was a little bit of like... Is he? But then both Woodward and Bernstein came forward with like signed statements confirming that Felt had been their source. Yeah. Um, you know, by 2005, basically everyone involved or, or charged in the Watergate scandal was dead. Um, and statute of limitations had passed. Yeah. For that anyways. Yeah, no one's going to lock up a 91-year-old man with dementia, so 
No. Also, I mean, at this point in history, I think no one would really charge him with anything. I don't think he'd ever be convicted of anything. No. Was there protection for whistleblowers at the time? Oh, goodness, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, super not. Like, there's ba- there's barely protection for whistleblowers now. There's only technically protection for whistleblowers now. Only, yeah, but there's this catch-22 of uh, only if they're they meet the definition of whistleblower which is very arbitrary and subjective oh right i always forget about that i I mean it's it's a little bit more intricate than that but that's kind of what it comes down to there's a lot of things that strip you of that status yeah um and national security are two words that make a lot of things go away and (laughs) a lot of people go away anyways let's talk about history finally after the election and after the fbi has confirmed that there's a conspiracy going on with the the watergate uh break-ins and after all of this when media outlets start thinking maybe the post is on to something maybe they get a new leak one of the burglars is thinking about flipping in fact they've got information that one of the burglars wrote to the judge uh running the case and told him i'll tell you everybody that's involved and that the judge offered him a very truncated sentence for this information. That's big. He also decided to put the squeeze on all the other burglars. He, they're, they're indicted, uh, suggested sentences by the judge for, again, remember, conspiracy, burglary, and wiretapping. Mm-hmm. He was suggesting a provisional 40 years contingent on whether or not they decided to talk. Wow. That's a lot of time for those crimes. Yeah. That's a lot of time for those crimes. It's a big squeeze. Reports from within the administration start coming in of paranoia, of mistrust, of unease. Uh, Nixon is getting very upset, as are his you know, top aides. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very unhappy with uh, the Washington Post specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, would like to move to block any of this information want to know where they're getting their information want to know who their source is Mm -hmm. really want to shut that down yep you know woodward and bernstein are low-key harassed over all of this stuff you know (laughs) low-key okay maybe not so low-key they're (laughs) harassed over this stuff they're asked to give over their their sources they refuse yeah um and they have every right to do so yep because really nothing that they're reporting is putting anyone at risk they're not committing any crimes by reporting it Mm -hmm. there's you know there have been cases made in more modern times of uh of forcing journalists to reveal sources based on again those two magic words national security yep um we're not in that era no they can seal their lips and keep on typing once again newspapers golden age there's a very antagonistic relationship even officially between the white house and the press at this point you get like extremely antagonistic uh uh press briefings there's accusations of um by the administration of of basically making things up of making unfounded accusations there's uh, an mm-hmm. accusation of a liberal bias within the media okay um public distrust of the media at this in this era rises to over 40% Wow. Uh, in the polls um because well i mean you're you're faced with uh who do you believe your president or your newspaper which is you know you would think that that would come out to about 50 50 in this time and you'd be right it's 60 40 <laughs> um yeah yeah it gets very very hostile but it gets to a point where they can only really get 
so far and the conspiracy that they've revealed to the public ends up being basically the conspiracy that the FBI comes forward with um, involving the five burglars and multiple members of, of the CRP. Mm-hmm. On January 30th of 1973, the five burglars, Hunt and Liddy, are all either convicted or plead guilty to the three charges that we uh, previously discussed. And here's the craziest part about Watergate for me. Okay. It could have pretty much ended there. It nearly ended there. But Nixon decided that the investigation had just gotten a little bit too close to him for comfort. And he decided that just distancing himself from the top players wasn't enough anymore. And that he was going to have to take action to intentionally obscure his connection to these burglars. And that's where everything's going to go really bad. All that being said, I think right here is a really good place to take a break. Take a bit of a breather from this whole... uh, (laughs) uh tangled web and uh when we come back next time we will talk about the uh the new conspiracy at play all right the conspiracy revealed by the watergate burglary was a major problem for the nixon administration but as clear as the connections seem in retrospect they weren't enough on their own to end nixon's tenure Had he simply allowed the investigation to play itself out, he likely would have come away with his presidency intact. But his paranoia of being discovered led to an extremely active and extremely illegal attempt to bury those connections as deeply as possible, and it would be those actions that would ultimately lead to his discovery. Next time on HI 101, we'll discuss not only that conspiracy, but how it ultimately unraveled. That episode will be up on January 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.